it. so hard to get here. <laughs> we haven't worked any harder than normal, actually. Just no, we didn't. Normal actually, hard. we took more time off than normal yeah, because yeah, we yeah. had a wedding and uh-huh. holidays in between. But and do you know what? It's okay. I've had a couple people say to me that we need to like take breaks so people can catch up. Like, mm. not everybody can listen to three hour episodes every single week. You know what? Thank you. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had several, several people say that. Like Marjorie's like, I can never get caught up or sister. Um, producer has said it. And then a couple people online as well. That's true. You know, cause I do, I found it cause like when people do find our show, like, mm-hmm. you know, they listen a lot. So we got a new review this week Yay! from Shauna. Thank Hi, you Shauna. so much. Um, and Shauna said that she's been listening like every day, which cause we do have content for a lot of days so you know what guys if you cannot find the episode that you want Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. you have to go to the website and we were we did get requested to put a search button on the website and i promise i am working on it because it's just they're in order and it's not easily searchable by name okay so it's hard to find who you're looking for so i am working on that and also shauna is going to be the first recipient recipient of marjorie's book (gasps) i bought a stack of them that anybody who leaves us a review i'm gonna send you a book for free (laughs) so exciting so if you don't know sister published a book of short stories it's a great stocking stuffer it's only like 70 pages Mm -hmm. it's all like short stories that she's written over the years and um you can rate and review her as well on Amazon. You can follow author pages on Amazon, hmm. which I always love That's to good do. To know. Yeah, you can follow an author that you like, and it'll tell you anytime they publish new stuff, and you can rate and review them on there. So if anybody wants to do that, that would be excellent because she is a new writer. This is her first like publication that's not just a short story, and she's yeah. self-publishing, so a big deal. That's very exciting. Yeah. The cover art, the editing, all like her. That's and, like, awesome. Her money, so. Mm. buy her book buy or book. get us to send it to you for free because i already yes. bought it and all you have to do is write and review it yeah or both buy it for someone else and i'll send it to you for free yeah okay perfect let's do the season finale all right so season are you 13 ready i'm ready for her story on the road with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women They've got new ones. But keep in mind, throughout this episode and the whole season, we've been drinking the entire time. And we're not <laughs> historians. Yeah. It's it gets pretty a terrible. little sloppy a little at the dicey. end. <laughs> I feel like a true historian today because I actually do know a lot about American government. Good. It's, it's the other things I don't know a lot about. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I am, you know, covering a big person in the feminist movement. And I was like, wow, I had my degree in this. I feel like I should know more about this person. <laughs> I am an idiot. Right. Dummy dumb. <laughs> um, yeah. So I am so ready to do this. But because you are busy buying sister's book right now, yes. your hands are busy. Your hands are busy. They're tapping away on Amazon. You're doing all the things. So you don't want to open up another web page to Google what these women look like. No. Because you're trying to keep your head on straight and focus and write a good review. So, (laughs) so because you cannot look up what these women look like, uh, online, we are going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing? And what does she look like? I am doing a banger mm. tonight. I am doing Sandra Day O'Connor for the season 13 finale. Yay. This is the third Supreme Court justice we've done. We did Son- Sonia Sotomayor and we did RBG back in mm-hmm. season one. Mm-hmm. So this is amazing. Okay. So she just has an everyday woman 
appearance. She mm-hmm. looks like the woman who sits in the pew behind your parents at church. Yep. Uh, she's got that short hair that's curled under just one time. It used to be dark. Now it's entirely white. She's got these sparkly eyes, but we'll mm-hmm. squint them at you when she's about to ask a question <laughs> that she's like going to get you. Uh-huh. Like, um, specifically to the lawyers. And then she has like a slightly gap toothed smile Mm -hmm. which I think is really sweet yeah so she's just I mean she is Sandra Day O'Connor if you don't know what she looks like then you're wrong yeah (laughs) who are you doing and what does she look like I am doing Betty for Dan right she was a short no nonsense woman with a very like downturned face she had a prominent nose deep laugh lines around her mouth and very heavy eyelids that almost made her look a bit sleepy, even though she was anything but. She had a ton of energy. She had short, curled, dark hair that turned salt and pepper as she aged, and she could typically be seen standing at a podium or marching in the streets for women's rights. And that's what she looked that's like. That's so fun. <laughs> this is going to be a great comparison this week. I can feel I it. I think so, too. I can feel it. Okay. So do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. Right. Last weekend, I was talking to a producer and mm-hmm. I was like, I want to make you a cocktail, mm-hmm. but I don't want to just like make a Manhattan or an old fashioned. Yeah. I want to mm-hmm. make something I haven't made. Yeah. And he was like, what about a Negroni? I love Negroni. And I was like, a what? Why didn't I know that was a thing? I no idea. Yeah. I can't believe you didn't I know couldn't that was I couldn't either. I couldn't. I had no idea. And I looked up like famous cocktails and it's like third on every <laughs> yeah. list. I was like, I'm so stupid. So it is a basic Negroni, mm-hmm. which is one part gin. One part Campari, one part sweet vermouth, but then I mixed it with sweet tea Ooh. so that it's just, just a little bit, just you know, a it's, a, different. it's got the big ice cube that yeah. you have in a cocktail uh-huh. glass, but the glass has flowers on it. Perfect. I really, I wanted to make it a, a man's drink in a woman's world. I love it. And it's called <laughs> Lessons in Civics. Perfect. Cheers. Mm. Mm. doesn't the sweet tea change it yeah it cuts the um the bitterness bitter. of the campari which yeah. is really nice yeah when i i had it just basic like last weekend when i was making it and i was like this is a bitter drink because it's yes, one it to is. one to one mm-hmm. and i really enjoyed it but i was like you know what mm. for sandra no, i'm gonna the, add some sweet tea the tea is lovely in it um <laughs> I like it a lot you know what's funny too is negronis i think are really popular at the moment because that famous tiktok thing or whatever it was oh, i wish i knew anything about TikTok. Um, it was like this audio that was going around where it was two uh actresses from or actors from the game of thrones thing oh yeah and you know the ones interviewing the other and she's like what's your favorite what's your drink of choice and she goes on negroni Oh, Spagliato. Oh, stunning. With Prosecco <laughs> in it. Mm. And it's like this very like funny audio that it's it's very pleasing to the ear. And I don't know why. Listen, <laughs> I feel like such a dummy that I had no idea that a Negroni was a drink. Like, I, I've been doing this cocktail for almost four years. Well, and you've had Campari. I know. In your I've had a lot of Campari. I have Campari in my home. I don't know what's wrong sure with me. That- I'm so dumb. The Negroni recipe is like on the back of the Campari Oh my bottle. God, I know. It probably is. I'm so dumb. I don't read recipes. I just like, you know, a dash yeah. here, a spritz there. I, I just do that. what I got to do. Well, it's delicious. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So tell me what you know about Sandra Day. Okay. So Sandra Day O'Connor, I think, was the first female Supreme Court justice. That's correct. Okay. Good job. I know <laughs> that I get her confused in my head sometimes with Madeline Albright. Yep. I feel like... 
those two for a while in my head were like interchangeable. Well, yeah. I mean, they were like, the first <laughs> high power women yeah. in American politics. Yeah. And in my head, they also like look similar mm-hmm. because in my head, I, they're just like two like older white women. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also why. Okay. Like, <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, cause like, and like Sandra Day O'Connor doesn't have the pop cultureness that like RBG had. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's so correct. I think that she sometimes gets the lesser spotlight. Uh huh. You know, and yeah, the, you know, so I really don't know much about her except for she was the first justice. Yeah. So I'm excited to learn. <laughs> I, you know, I saw this on the list this week and I was like, okay, this is going to be dry. I was mm-hmm. telling Katie in the kitchen while I was making cocktails. I was like, I've always felt about Sandra Day O'Connor that it's just a very vanilla story, but I learned so much and I really am excited to share this story because I think that she should be more of a feminist icon. <gasps> Perfect. And I... I'm ready to tell you. Let's okay. get into it. So my main source is the PBS documentary called First, which is based on the book about her life called First. Okay. So that's what's going on here. All right. Sandra Day, which is the cutest name on the fucking planet, uh, was born in El Paso, Texas on March 26th, 1930. Hmm. So she's pre-World War. Yeah. She grew up on a 200,000-acre ranch in Arizona. She and her family were nine miles from the nearest paved road. (gasps) It took a full day for a man, a grown man on a horse, to ride across her family's property. No thanks. No. Sandra did not have running water or electricity until she was seven. (gasps) Arizona is the frontier in the 1930s. As soon as she could hold a rifle, she could shoot one. She was shooting coyotes and jackrabbits all over her property. She's a child. She's a baby child. I don't understand how anybody gets out of those situations. (laughs) Did you expect this at all? No. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) They're going to be like, she grew up in Staten Island. (laughs) (laughs) She was in Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, and she went to Yale. She (laughs) is like in the Wild West. She's in the Wild West in the 1930s shooting She's Annie Oakley. Oh, my God. Her family's ranch is called the Lazy Bee, and they called it their own country because it was. Yeah. <laughs> there was no one else there. Everyone pitched in. Everyone worked. The men, the women, it's equal. If there's a job to be done, you do it. Not only could she shoot a rifle, though, when she was very young, she could also drive her family's cars <laughs> around the ranch. Um, by at least 10, she's yeah. driving. Wow. Now, when she's 14, by that point, it is her job to drive the car to bring all the farm hands food. Mm-hmm. So she's driving the pickup truck out to bring her dad and the, the food her and her mom made out to her dad and the other workers. She gets a flat tire in the middle of the ranch. And she's a 14-year-old girl. She has to get out and change this tire, which, first of all, the mechanics of changing a tire are not very hard. But if the nut and bolt are rusted, and I'm sure this is a ranch pickup truck. Yeah. It takes muscle. Okay. And she's a little baby. Just recently. Yeah. On my 2016 Honda CRV, uh-huh. my dad had to bring Casey and I a mallet. Yes. To get the tire off because, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I don't even know why it was like this. Yes. It's not like it's rusted. But so Casey had to get under the, under my car, 
and bang the tire off with a mallet. Yeah. And that is a current car. It's insane. <laughs> like, I know, so you're, like, usually people will jack the car up mm-hmm. and then take the nuts off. Don't do no, that. you have to loosen them first. Yeah, and, like, I would, I sometimes, I would put the wrench on, uh-huh. and I would run over and jump on it. Like, <laughs> as, like to... Get See, all my body weight on the wrench. But you couldn't even do that. Here's the crazy thing. We got all the nuts off. But the tire was the tire. On. The tire literally couldn't. All the things are off. The okay. tire. We had to have two jacks. Unbelievable. So Sandra. By I herself. Feel pain. 14. I feel your pain. In Arizona. It's hot. She's so going to die of water loss. Okay. Oh so she finally gets the tire back on or the donut or whatever. Makes it to the farmhands and her dad. And she's so proud of herself. And she's telling him. <laughs> and he goes, you're late. Next time, leave earlier. In case you get a flat tire in, in the middle of the desert. desert. And she said that she learned from that there are no excuses in life. Don't make Damn. excuses. Be where you're supposed to be. <laughs> I did leave 10 minutes earlier today because the traffic has gotten much worse. It's gotten worse. It's, it's that Christmas traffic. It is. Okay. And, and I was on time today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Even though I hit tons Sandra, of Sandra, look at us. <laughs> okay. So her parents did have this ranch, but they were reluctant ranchers. Her mom and dad had gone to college. Her mom greeted every day on the ranch in like pearls and pantyhose. <laughs> but the reason they were there was her dad got this like call back to like take care of the family ranch. Okay. So he's there doing it. She did have two younger siblings, but they're way younger than her. So she pretty much grew up as an only child. They're mm-hmm. like nine or 10 years younger than her. And she was her dad's like hope she's Mm. living the life that her dad wanted okay this like big power city girl from the time she was six on she only stayed in the ranch in the summers she was sent to live with her grandmother in el paso where she went to public school during the school year eventually she graduates from austin high school and she excelled because she skipped two grades oh my gosh uh, and graduated at 16 And at 16 years old, in 1946, she got into Stanford. Oh, my gosh. 16-year-old girl in the 40s in Stanford. And she said it was utopia. (laughs) She loved it. It was green and lush and beautiful. And it wasn't a ranch. (laughs) And there were all these city girls who knew how to be proper around men. But she had spent her life around shirtless men in desert fields. And she was not scared to talk to the boys. Oh, my gosh. And at this time, college is all GIs and bomber jackets because every guy that came back was allowed into Ivy League (laughs) schools. Everybody who came back from the war, they're like, Stanford, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, go ahead, honey. J.D. Salinger's like, I'm here. (laughs) Hi, everybody. (laughs) I wrote a book. I'm a drunk, but it's fine. Um, So everybody's back. And within, like, days, all these city girls are shocked because Sandra is pulling down the hot teas. She is dating the boys <laughs> on sorry, campus. You said pulling down the hot teas? The hotties. The boys. Oh, hotties. I was yeah. like, what are hot teas? Like, the hot t-shirts, you know, hot yoga. <laughs> what? What? No, yeah. <laughs> okay. she's, at, like, she's dating all the boys. Okay. Everything's really easy for her. She sails through undergrad. She graduates magnum cum laude. She gets a BA in economics. Ah. It's like everything's fine. Yeah. And then she's inspired by one of her professors to keep studying. He's like, look, 
any single person can have an impact. And I think it's time. This man's a great feminist. I think it's time for women to have an impact and men need to not just let them, but promote them. Mm -hmm. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to go to Stanford law. And he's like, cool, 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 cool. Great. She ends up at Stanford law and um, she gets on the Stanford law review, which of course is hard to do. And she's working with the then editor, Bill Rehnquist, who also ends up on the Supreme Court. Oh if you don't gosh. know who Bill Rehnquist is, and even better, not. they start dating. <gasps> so no. she spends her life working with oh her ex-boyfriend. Oh my gosh. She deserves a medal <laughs> just for that. I love that. When I was like, she's working with, she's dating Bill Rehnquist? That's bananas. <laughs> I can't believe that. Because he ends up the chief justice for a while. So awkward. I cannot believe that. Oh they went to, okay, okay crazy <laughs> she graduates top 10 percent of her in her class at stanford and her and all the boys start applying for jobs there are 40 jobs in san francisco 40 law firms that you can apply to she applied to every single one she got one interview and they asked how well can you type they're gonna oh, hire her as a secretary no that's not okay top 10 percent from no, law school you. ivy that's league ridiculous mm. i hate that me too but this was a typical experience we mm-hmm. heard this of rbg we heard this of patsy yeah. mink so she knew she was smart. She knew her cla- male classmates are getting job offers. She knew her friend and previous boyfriend, Bill Rehnquist, just got called to be a clerk on the Supreme Court. So he's going over there. And Already? Yeah, he's a clerk. Oh, okay, a clerk. Remember, okay. like, but so- he's in the realm. He's okay. in the realm. But, like, Sonia Sotomayor was a clerk for RBG, I think, for yeah. a while. Um, but anyway, he's over there in D.C. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm the only one left. Like, nobody will hire me. This is so frustrating. Um, Bill Rehnquist even writes her a letter t- proposing to her. But by <gasps> then, John O'Connor had already whoop, uh, scooped her up. God, I was hoping he was writing her, like, a letter of recommendation. Oh, he will. <laughs> oh, okay, He good. stays a very good, like, friend of hers. <sighs> it's funny that they're exes, but... They stay well. You know, I am a big proponent of like being okay with exes if you can. Yeah. And John and Sandra O'Connor are friends with him and his wife like to to the end. That's really sweet. It's very cool. Okay. I like that. So he writes a letter proposing, but she's like, sorry, I'm already dating John O'Connor. Like after you left, they were doing an editing project on the Stanford Law Review together. And after that, he took her out for dinner the next 41 nights (gasps) in a row. And then they get married. Who is he? Noah? Oh, my God. <laughs> He's bringing that grain in. 40 from days the and 40 nights. Oh, Noah. Yes, he is Noah. Um, but they're married shortly after Christmas. And um, it, I mean, everything is just roses. She's so happy. And she finally found a law firm that had previously hired a woman. Ugh. So she goes in and she's like, can you please hire me? And he's like, I don't have a position. And furthermore, I don't have an office. And she goes, if you don't have a position, that's okay. I'll work pro bono. I'm going to work for free. And if your secretary will have me, can I share her desk? Oh my, I would never be so bold. That's my problem. Yeah. I would never tell someone, it's me. make room for me. <laughs> like, like make what? Room for me. And meanwhile, she's saying, I never felt discriminated against. That's what's <laughs> happening, Sandra. Literally happening. You're being discriminated against just now. I feel like everything that she's doing is like, you know, she's keeping that thing that her dad said in the back of her mind. It's like, 
just do it like nobody gives a shit about like no. what you had to go through to get here like just get it done you know what Keep i'm saying like going i think that she's thinking of like this blatant discrimination is just like a flat tire yeah <laughs> it's a flat tire <laughs> i'm gonna be it i'm gonna work through it like, i gotta deliver the lunch God. and i also think she was scared of being seen as weak because there, yeah. you know, there is no equal rights amendment right now. There uh-huh. is no affirmative action right uh-huh. now. Like those things don't exist. Mm-hmm. So she's not going to be whiny. She's mm-hmm. going to show. Not that those things are whiny. Yeah. Those <laughs> things are very important. But she needs to show up. That's all she can do. Mm-hmm. So then her husband gets drafted and they pick up and they go to Germany. And she's a civil attorney in Germany for the Army Corps for three years. They come back. She has three sons, Scott, Brian, and Jay. And they settle down in an affluent neighborhood in phoenix and she said you can fit all the female lawyers in phoenix around one table (laughs) her husband of course got a job quickly she was a woman and pregnant most of the time so she opened a small law business and did what she could but she's busy raising kids so she's like you know what how i'll make money i'll write questions for the state bar exam and i'll work on bankruptcy cases that nobody wants and she cooks her way through the entire recipe gauntlet of mastering the art of french cooking (gasps) all while doing this no yes oh my gosh all that is woman this woman okay john uh, is making a name for himself as a litigator he's on hospital boards and he took his wife to everything introduced her to everyone it was his love in life to have people meet his smart amazing wife and she would charm them with her grace and knowledge So he starts to become active in the U.S. Republican Party in Arizona. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to stuff envelopes on the campaign trail. Um, And their very affluent neighbor is running for a position in the Republican government, which is different. This is the pre-Reagan moral America Mm -hmm. Republicans. This is like renegades. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is pre-GOP being morally, ethically against everything that I love. So, yeah, she is... um, It's like the small state governments. Let's keep the government close to the people. Capitalism is important. Mm -hmm. Like, let's... So, that's... the fiscal conservatives. Yes. (laughs) So, that's where she is. And those parties any parties, Democratic or Republican, are thriving on women right now because they are the lifebloods of these parties, stuffing envelopes for free, going door to door, blah, blah, blah. So she's doing that. But then, like, her kids are all in kindergarten, and she's ready to go back to work. So she goes to the law, uh, the, like, Arizona State Senate, and she's like, I need a job. And they're like, okay, we'll make you, like, assistant to the attorney general, which is, like, a small, low-paying position in state government. But just a bit later, a Republican seat in the state Senate is vacated midterm. And she appeals to them and she's like, look, I'm perfect for this. And they go, okay. So she's elevated to a position on the Arizona state Senate. (gasps) And like, this is right when the women's movement is happening. So they are putting her in everything. You be in a committee. You do this. Let's show you off. You're a show pony. You're Mm -hmm. the woman in the Arizona state Senate. So. Um, she says, I do not identify as a feminist. And this is important, obviously, because the woman you're doing very strongly Mm -hmm. identified as a feminist, but we've talked about this before. There are feminist times in history where we definitely insulted women of color and black women. There are feminist times in history where we did not like present day, except women who were identified male at birth. But this time in history 
women who were serving in traditional gender roles were really alienated by the feminist movement. And it's really sad because we lost a lot of good people that way. So she said, I'm not, she, like her big thing is I'm not a feminist, but you know, like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm doing all the work. <laughs> I'm like here, I'm just not protesting in the streets. So she said, I come to you with my bra and my wedding ring on. So it was very I love <laughs> that statement. I know. Oh my God. Like I am here. I am doing the work, mm-hmm. but I, you don't have to like, I think the thing back then was to be scared of feminists on the streets. And mm-hmm. we needed that. We yep. needed those women, but we also needed women that were approachable. And she yes. was one, mm-hmm. which is nice. Okay. So she's like, I'm going to get in the door and get the job done. She reads all the legislation that nobody else will read. She's working across the aisle like none of the boys will. She's good at compromising and everybody loves it. Now, they did call her a know-it-all because <laughs> she would amend an entire bill to remove a comma. Okay, but she's a Hermione Granger. Yeah, and can we fault her for that? It's fine. No. We cannot. That's a perfect thing to be. <laughs> but they respected her because she could get the work done without making you feel stupid. She could, like, play you without you know you were being played, which is really nice. And that's kind of, unfortunately, that's what men needed at that point. Yeah. It's like playing to the patriarchy, but they needed a soft entry to women. And yes. she was it. <laughs> so... Her biggest antagonist at that point was Tom Goodwin. He was the kind of man that was a drunk, and he was like a drunk at 9 a.m. at work guy. He would go in his office. He would shut his door, and one day she called him out for it, and she was like, you are drinking too much. And Tom Goodwin says, if you were a man, I would punch you. And she goes, if you were a man, you could. (laughs) Sandra! Like, Sandy. The guy, the guy from Greece. Sandy. <laughs> Shots fired. Got him. Okay. Danny. Danny Zuko is his name. Danny Zuko. Okay. Had a momentary <laughs> lapse of judgment. Yeah. So Arizona feminists want her to really pass through the Equal Rights Amendment. Her and the Republican Party up to this point had been campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment. This was a big deal. But then. We get the big civil war that starts to break the Republican Party. And in Arizona, this was a woman named Phyllis. And (gasps) Phyllis is saying, the ERA is a fraud. It will take away our rights as women to be protected by men financially. She's saying it's an elite conspiracy to deprive women of traditional gender arrangements. And that it's anti-family and anti-God to be in with the ERA. And this is what Sandra has to go up again. Phyllis Shapley? Yeah. (laughs) So, Miss Phyllis, uh, Sandra's like, okay, look, this is... Here's something important about Sandra. She hates cases and politics that are about virtue signaling, and she refuses to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. So she will not be a part of this. Mm -hmm. So instead of taking up the cause of the ERA that she had been working on for three decades, instead of pushing it through with the feminist agenda, and instead of fighting Phyllis, she lets it go to committee. Okay. Just lets it go. Mm-hmm. Feminists are really pissed. Yeah. Phyllis is happy with herself. But Sandra, in the background, makes a list of every unequal law in the Arizona state and changes every single one. Just by herself. There you go. Behind closed doors. Oh, my God. She does what the Equal Rights Amendment would have done for Arizona, but without the big public argument that makes it a shit show. Wow. Okay. Everyone. That's very cool. It's very cool. <laughs> it's very cool. 
I was like, damn, Sandra, that's really smart because she just didn't want to like the, I mean, virtue signaling is the best way to put it. She didn't want to be a part of something just to be a part of it. Yeah. So she, um, it's the seventies. Her and her husband are the golden couple in Phoenix. Not only are they both successful at their jobs, but they're cute. They're sporty. They have cocktail parties. <laughs> And they treat each other as equals, which nobody could understand and were actually fascinated by. I saw an interview with one of her sons, and he was like, so my mom would be working in one room on her yellow legal pad, and my dad would be working on his yellow legal pad, and then they would trade, and they would edit each other's work, and then it would be a bill on Monday. Oh, <laughs> it's like my God. what they did, and they were like, we didn't know that wasn't normal. <laughs> but Sandra said, I was never one of the boys. She was tired of having to play politics. She was smart, but nobody around her is smart as her. Yeah. And she liked the idea of being a lawyer and a judge because people had to wait for you to speak. There's an order to everything. You do yeah. what you're supposed to do. Nobody's cutting you off, treating you like, sit, like shit. So she says to her husband, I want to be a judge, especially because, because Nixon put Bill Rehnquist in the Supreme Court. And she's like, <laughs> my ex-boyfriend, I got higher grades on exams than him. Like, yeah. I, I could be in the Supreme Court. So she's like, okay, I can do this. There are 9,000 judges in Arizona. 300 of them are women. So she spends her and her husband's money, like $1,300 or whatever, to send mail outs to all the Republicans mm -hmm. so that she can get votes to be a state judge. Mm -hmm. She wins with 70% of the votes over her male opponent. Amazing. She's five years on the bench with burglary, divorce, sitting all day, soap opera-esque yeah. type judging. And then she gets promoted to the Arizona Court of Appeals. One year later, Reagan comes out as against the ERA. He's against the Equal Rights Amendment. And he's doing it as a really smart political move. But this is what eventually marries religion and mm -hmm. the conservative party. Yeah. He's doing it for a smart reason. Churches are pre-existing infrastructure. Yes. You've got the people. You've got the buildings. You've got the money. And you've got a leader in each respective building mm -hmm. that can help your cause like yes it is yeah that it's was very smart. smart move on his part it's very smart <laughs> um, he had one leader that said we have three goals this year get them saved get them baptized get them registered to vote whoop Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what they said <laughs> i'm fine with the first two and the third one but separately yeah. <laughs> so it's very powerful and very smart. But because now he's the first Republican to come out against the ERA, he looks like he hates women. He looks like a woman hater. Yeah. So Reagan comes out and says, don't worry. If I get elected president, my first Supreme Court nomination vacancy that I get to fill is going to be a woman. The reason he had to say that is because he was nine points down in women voters. He was up on the men, but he was down on the women, and he needed a way to get college-educated white women. That was his target. So he said, if I tell them one of them can be a Supreme Court justice, they might vote for me. I Didn't Trump just do this? Yeah. <laughs> Don't they all do that? <laughs> I promise it'll be a woman. It'll be. Even if we strip away your abortion rights, it will be a woman be who does it. Like, that makes it worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, um, you know, yeah. it's funny. I thought about name. <laughs> I was listening to this thing on dread this week because mm -hmm. I think I have a lot of dread, um, as everybody does. Right. But one of the things is like, you should name your dread. And it was funny cause I, 
the first name that came to mind was Sandra, <laughs> which is very close to Sandra. Yeah, it Different is. names. Um, but yeah, so. That. You named your dread Sandra. Sandra. Mm, I like that name. Yeah. I'm going to have Sand- to think about that for my yeah. life. Okay. <laughs> Here's that okay. on your Patreon talk. Okay. <laughs> What's your dread? Oh, my God. <laughs> <Spagliato>. <laughs> um, okay, continue. So Reagan becomes president. Spoiler. <laughs> 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 president Reagan um, and Nance Pants in office. <laughs> Justice Stewart announces his resignation. And um, John and Sandra, apparently the kids say, looked at each other over dinner and made that couple uh-huh. communication thing just with mm-hmm. eyes. He calls everyone he knows and makes sure her name's on the table. But by the time Sandra's name gets to Reagan, it had already been suggested by both Arizona State Senators Damn. and her ex-boyfriend, okay. Bill Rehnquist. <laughs> All of them said Sandra Day O'Connor. God, she's good in the second. She's good on the bench. I Let me know. tell you something. I know. <laughs> Give me a gavel, baby. So <laughs> Reagan's team comes to see her. And wouldn't you know, when they come in, she doesn't just sit down with them to talk politics, but she serves them food because <laughs> she can be the moral majority. She can be a woman who's going to serve you and be as smart as you. And they eat it up. And I don't even think she's doing it on purpose. I think she just was like, well, I'm the woman of the house. I guess I got to feed the president. You know what I mean? Yeah. I know. So funny. Oh, Sandra. (laughs) So Reagan nominates her, of course, and it's on every radio broadcast. And apparently a lot of women pulled over in their car and started crying. Really? And just like sat there and cried because this is so important. And like they could tell their daughters, like, you don't have to be a nurse or a teacher. Like you can be a judge, like a Supreme Court judge. It's so important. And she doubted herself. But her husband never did. He was ready to leave his law practice, pick up, move across the country, and just have the privilege of his wife being a Supreme Court justice. And this is 1981. Men did not do things like that. Yeah. No, definitely not. Yeah. There were lines of vehicles lined up outside her house, up and down the street. She's on the cover of every magazine and newspaper. She's something of a celebrity. All of the sudden and out of nowhere, she apparently knew almost nothing about constitutional law. She sat on the state. She was a state judge, yeah. but had to jump in cold because, like, she took classes on it, obviously. Uh-huh. And, like, she had to do a little bit in courts of appeals, but nothing like you have to do in the Supreme Court. But when they do, the three days of questioning that they do, first off, hers is the first ever that is televised gavel to gavel. It got more viewers and press pass requests than the Watergate scandal. Everybody wanted to see this because the ERA. The right was not okay with Reagan's choice. They were like, she voted for the ERA. She did some things that helped support against restricting abortion, Uh like blah, blah, blah. They did not like it at all. And this is seven years past Roe v. Wade. So this is the first time abortion is asked during this questioning. (gasps) The first time. Wow. And now it's the litmus test for whether yeah, or yeah, not you totally can be is. a it's justice, like which question. is really ridiculous because there are so many important things mm-hmm. and it, abortion should not be the litmus test of whether or not you should be on the Supreme Court. But here we are. <laughs> so they ask her, what are your personal and um, political feelings? And she said, A, as a judge, your personal feelings should never matter. Oh. And B... I cannot tell you what my political feelings are because I don't have a case in front of me to judge on. 
And she answers that for pretty much every question. She's like, I judge on a case by case. Yeah. I'm not judging as a Republican. I'm not judging as a Democrat. I am a judge. And she sticks through that her entire career. Wow. She then, because some people are a little uncomfortable about her not answering any questions. So she goes and meets senators. She meets 39 of them and dazzles them. She talks to Joe Biden. She talks to Ted Kennedy. They love her. That's how long Joe Biden's been around. My God. I saw a video of him and I was like, why aren't you dead yet? I okay. Why aren't you dead yet? Here's the thing. All the men who elect her to the Supreme Court are still in, still in Congress. And it's problematic. It's very problematic. I hate it. <laughs> it's just, guys. Bernie Sanders is there. <laughs> the crew. Crew, crew, crew. <laughs> Unreal. Put them in a boat. They are in the crew. We need to send them. <laughs> <laughs> we need They're to send rowing them to Valhalla. Go, go. We're done with you. Oh my gosh. Where's the refresh b- yeah. button? Like <laughs> refresh. We're done with it. But powerful men loved her. She just had a fantastic charm about her that was like, I'm not intimidating. I'm not. <laughs> so the final vote of confirmation was 99 to zero. <laughs> Unanimous. What? I don't know. I didn't even look it up. I was so like, I wanted to be the only time. So statistics (laughs) in our listenership. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Misty, get us the stats. Honestly, Google it. You're not a political scientist, but you're still a scientist. (laughs) Every, every man in that room was on the right side of history and they knew it. They knew they were doing the right thing, which is really important, especially because like she's cute, but she's not like intimidatingly beautiful and she's smart but she doesn't shove it in your face she could be on the pta yeah she's great she's great she is great. okay people stop her in her car on the way to work she is a celebrity people are shouting at her in the streets she's on magazines she's on the radio she's the only woman among men now the two men who knew her on the court that she had worked with before rinquist and another guy they don't give her any advice when she comes in they're like whatever they do have to correct people who keep calling her miss o'connor instead of justice o'connor so that's important okay but she's very lonely Mm -hmm. and she says it's lonely in her diaries because it was good to be the first but she didn't want to be the last and she knew every eye was on her and if she fucked it up then they were gonna have to like really wait a long time Mm -hmm. and it's also a little rocky at first first of all when she got there the chief justice which i don't remember his name or care for it gave her a memo about how to act when you enter a high power environment if you're a woman and how it's intimidating to men so you should be passive and she's like well that's fucking dumb oh okay i i like that he's like this is how you should act when you're entering a room when it's like well, why doesn't she get to decide? Because she's probably the first person to be doing any of this shit. So, like, yeah. you're telling her that, like, this is the precedent when, like, mm-hmm. there's never been anyone in a position like hers. Right. So she gets to set the precedent. She gets to do whatever <laughs> she wants. And you've also probably noticed that she wears a robe that's a little bit shorter. Not a dress code thing. She just brought her robes from Arizona and was like, I'll buy a new one when this one wears out. Because <laughs> usually the Supreme Court justices wear ones that go down to, like, the floor. She just is like... Eh, I'm being frugal. She's like, I like to show a little ankle. <laughs> Sue me. Check me. Check me Sue out. Sue me. <laughs> so she's doing that. And then the first oral argument she goes to hear, she's so nervous. It's 30 minutes in when she starts to ask her first question. And the lawyer says, let me finish. <gasps> to a Supreme Court judge, you are supposed to never do that. He cut her off. <gasps> You're supposed to stop speaking when a Supreme Court judge goes to ask a question. So 
she had to let it roll off her back and just change the tire and keep going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever. In her first term, there's some 160 cases, but her workday never ended because as the first woman, she was a symbol. The White House trotted her out for photo ops. She was at every swearing in for every person holding the Bible. She was at every party in town. She got in her first term 60,000 letters, which is more than any other justice in all history. So just people writing to her. Writing to her to talk to her. And she didn't like the celebrity, but what she did like was being a role model. So she said, I need to show up when I'm invited because the more women that see me, the more girls that see me, Mm -hmm. the more I exist. So she knew she was being representative. But both sides are scrutinizing her because she's like, I'm a cowgirl. (laughs) But they're like, no, the moment you showed up here, you're a symbol of history. Yeah. And also, now she has to hear cases. I mean, remember, this is the 80s, and you get to the Supreme Court by Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. So they're hearing cases from the 70s, 60s, and 50s. So she's hearing cases on race, religion, crime, abortion, gender, death penalty, affirmative action. Like, this This is when all the heavy hitters are coming. All of them are coming in. (laughs) All of them. I mean, Roe v. Wade is only seven years old. Everybody's Mm -hmm. trying to fight it. The feminist movement is big. And and I mean, this is right at the beginning of affirmative action. And Mm -hmm. she is conservative and she has the question a lot of people have at the time if you are replacing employee a's position with a position for employee b what happens to employee a like she is asking the big questions and she's dealing with the ingrained thoughts that our country has had for a very long time but she's willing to ask the questions and hear the answers yeah Mm -hmm. which was nice She's also cautious. She doesn't fit neatly into a conservative box, and people did not like that that was Reagan's pick. Mm -hmm. Second year, a very important case comes through. There's a man, and he applied to the Michigan Nursing School, which was all women. Now, this is a strategic move by the feminist movement to get Mm -hmm. this moved up the line, Mm -hmm. and it struck a chord with her. Um, She felt like he should be allowed to go there and that it's a public school. And she was asking the other judges, like if it was a all white institution, would you feel the same way about a black person going there? Like she's really confused. And she thought that it was based on stereotyping that men didn't want to be nurses. So it is a four to four vote. And as the junior justice, you always get the last vote. And Sandra decided that he should be allowed to go to the nursing school. And then she is assigned to write the position, the opinion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what she does becomes a staple for her. She gives all the reasoning. And then in her reasoning, she applies it to just that school. And she does this every single time. Mm Because the problem with the Supreme Court, not the problem, is the check and balances that they have has turned into what we know as judicial review. Mm -hmm. Judicial review is when they make a thing and then it applies to everybody. She believed that it was supposed to be a limited check on power, only the cases that were in front of them. So she just really believed that the best government is the government closest to the people and that most often you should be able to decide for yourself. Then there's another retirement. Rinquist becomes Supreme Court Justice, her ex-bo, and she's still working there. And then Antonin Scalia, the oh, big right-wing Republican. We know he's like best friends with RBG, but Antonin Scalia was a big, big right-wing Republican. At uh-huh. first, O'Connor's like, he's a brush of 
breath of fresh air. But then she's like, oh my God, he's so abrasive. I want to fucking kill him. (laughs) But like those types of things, like when other right-wing people started to get added to the court, it slowly moved her left. Like she slowly is becoming more and more left. And like one day he goes on this big rant about how affirmative action is just giving people jobs with despite Mm. their gender or their sex. And she goes, how do you think I got my job? (laughs) Like He's like, Oh, but he is all right. Yeah. Just a quick rant. It is so offensive. The idea that like people who benefit from affirmative action, like don't like are just like random people off the street. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like it's not someone who's qualified. Like (laughs) they're qualified for the fucking job. I had a man yell at me one time because he's like, I didn't get into the doctoral or whatever it was like the, doctor medical program that he wanted to because he goes they had to let in a woman for my place i'm like well maybe you should have been better than the last man then like yeah. i'm sorry that like We're like running different not, races like, buddy <laughs> it's not like the woman who got in also didn't deserve to be there it's right. not like they were like you know i'm fucking working at the gas station and they're like hey we need some women in this medical program like do you want to be in here like you up i you up for the job? hate the idea that like <laughs> they it's, don't it's deserve absurd. to be there it's absurd it's really absurd oh my god yeah okay. people who get angry about affirmative Just, action uh, i want to kick them in the teeth <laughs> also anton and scalia like there are two types of justices they're the ones who interpret the constitution the way the founding fathers would have mm-hmm. and people who interpret it based on what they think the meaning is today he's a founding father would have interpreter which is Mm -hmm. very annoying because that's absurd (laughs) so he's musket balls for everybody all around (laughs) that third amendment where no army can come stay in my house love it that's a good one it's you know what i think it's the most important amendment actually amendment number three so he sees the law in black and white law in black and white she sees it in gray and she is never going to say, I'm a liberal, so I think X. I'm a conservative, so I think Y. But then she's in the peak of her career, and she gets a call from her doctor. They say, you know that biopsy we took last week? It's, um, it's breast cancer. No. And she goes, fuck. <laughs> Verbatim. Fuck. <laughs> and th- this, at first, is supposed to be an annoyance. She goes back to the doctor She's 58 years old, and it is more than an annoyance. Her cancer has spread. What? She felt weak. She felt emotional. She is trying to hear things on the court. She's the prime of her career. And John wrote in his diary, I was stunned. It's the first time I've seen her lose it emotionally. This is the first thing she can't control in her entire life. Right. This She's, is, oh my God, this isn't the car breaking down. This is the no. car getting sucked up into a tornado. Yeah. She it's can't like, control anything. I, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? So she goes and radically at the time gets a mastectomy. Gets a mastectomy, returns to the bench, schedules all her chemos for Friday. So she's only nauseous on Saturday. Powers through dinners, powers through everything she can, knows that people are watching her going, how pale is she? When can Reagan pick somebody new? When is she going to resign? Blah, blah, blah. It sucks when your health becomes politicized as like, well, we could get another like, you know, justice that aligns with our beliefs if that one just croaks. Like what the fuck? Yeah. And George H.W. Bush is then being elected. Um, He obviously is also (laughs) pro-life. 
Sandra's still sticking with the Republican Party. In fact, she's really close friends with Barbara Bush. They, like, play tennis together. It's, like, a pretty good situation. Um, but she's famously quiet about abortion. There's now, though, bombings in abortion clinics. Mm. Public funds are going, like, sucked away from abortions. And she's not going to be able to stay quiet for that much longer. So she starts looking around, doing her research, looking at other cases. And she finds the phrase and adopts it if it's undue burden on the woman. So there can't be undue burden. Mm -hmm. Um, People on the right are cheering for her because a new case is coming across the desk to try to push abortion through. Just the same way that they were trying to, the um, left wing was trying to push through the equal rights with the nursing school. They're doing a similar thing. They think O'Connor is like enough in the middle that she is going to vote on their side. So what happens is they're putting a list of things out there that the woman needs to do. And they're like, if we can get enough restrictions on Roe v. Wade, it'll be fine. So they're like, okay. So when women come, um, they need to wait 24 hours before the abortion. They need to get counseling. They, if they're underage, they need to notify their parents. And if they're married, they need to notify their husband. So she's like, all right. Um, you know, that's some hurdles, but she's got this undue burden in her head. And, um, she asks, okay, but like, um, what about, uh, women who aren't married? Do they have to notify like their dad, the dad, <laughs> the, the partner? And they're like, nope, this only applies to married women. And she says, well, what's the purpose for that? And they said, well, the number one purpose is to protect the unborn child. And she said, then you should notify every father, not just husbands. What you're doing is putting a cage around women who are married. Yeah. And um, it's four to four and she votes on the other side. Good. Against these restrictions. Because the restrictions are bullshit. Yeah. So they're. Yeah. She. It's anything. Any kind. It's. Because I worked in this field. It's like mm-hmm. any little tiny, like even like they were tr- like a lot, many states require you to get like require women to get or anyone who's pregnant to get uh, an ultrasound before mm-hmm. they do it. And, you know, and it's like then like you're seeing the you're fetus and the like heartbeat. you're hearing the heartbeat. Yeah. It's like this whole thing. It's anything to put you and the thing that you want to do. There's barriers in and between it. what happens too is you have to schedule an appointment and it takes four weeks yep. and then it takes you out of the time realm when you're yep. allowed to get an abortion so mm-hmm. it's purposely preventing you and it's yeah. like it's also like not just her there were other conservative justices who were like against this yeah. and they the, these two other men sat down and like talked with sandra about what they do to deal with this like how do we yeah. go against the right and um the news came out and said Two Reagan and one Bush appointee stabbed pro-life in the back. (laughs) I love it. Caesar. (laughs) Um, But this, I mean, it's really important because since this ruling, women have had some remote rights to abortion because of the undue, like, pressure. They can't have that. Mm -hmm. So... Bush loses the presidency. Sad, sad, sad. She loves Barbara. Sad to see you go. Clinton <laughs> comes in. But with Clinton comes Ruth. Yay. Yay! <laughs> Ruth's here. Ruth's here. Um, and Sandra is delighted. Mm-hmm. She's so happy to have her. She felt so alone for so long. And they 
Like Ruth says, she came in. She told her what she needed to know. She gave her the ropes. They finally got a bathroom in the female robing room. What? <laughs> Sandra had no bathroom to herself. That's crazy. Crazy, crazy. <laughs> so they get a bathroom. And because the clerks in the court can't recognize them, because they're women, they had to get T-shirts made that I'm Sandra, not Ruth. I'm Ruth, not Sandra. No joke. They're they look completely <laughs> different. I know. But what? they had these T-shirts made. That Crazy. is bananas. <laughs> I know. So, but the thing that's great for Sandra now is... Anytime she ruled before, people would question her and be like, what's your uniquely feminine opinion on this? <laughs> and she was like, I'm not the fucking mom of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Like, so now there's two of them. It's just a court. That's it. Good. Like, and she's very happy to have her there. Mm-hmm. Even though Ruth is very left. Yeah. You know, and she's fine with that. She just, we, like, it was good to have her there. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, though, it turns out that there are four left justices and there are four right justices and o'connor always ends up being the deciding vote she becomes known as the swing vote justice usually when you are the chief justice Mm -hmm. it's called your court so this should be called rinquist's court but it starts to be called o'connor's court (laughs) which is great because that's your ex-boyfriend and show him (laughs) up she says, I want to be part of the conversation. I don't just want to walk in and know which way I'm going to vote based on the case. So of all the cases she heard in all of like the years, like the, I think there's the 1999 to 2000 year. She was only on the losing side four times <laughs> because her vote was always the swing vote. I love that. So she, um, I was watching an interview where a guy said, it's crazy. There are hundreds of millions of people in the United States, and she was the only vote that mattered. (laughs) I was like, damn, Sandra, (laughs) it's heading it home. And then the thing that haunts her is the Gore-Bush election. As we know, the recounts in Florida between Gore and Bush were problematic and hard. And Al Gore should have been the president of the United States. Sandra Day O'Connor knows that. But it never would have happened anyway. So here's what happened. I learned a lot about this. Obviously, I was alive when it was happening. There's the hanging chad. There's the swing vote. The recount and recounting. Al Gore wins the popular vote. But none of them, neither of them had enough um, electoral votes. Yeah. I actually, one of my professors in college described, because, you know, she's a, you know, gender studies professor. Mm-hmm. She was like, we're all at this party and we're like all these like queer people who are like, you know, Democrats and liberals who are like all just like ecstatic. Like, like, and then she was like, when they announced that he didn't like, it was like a Macy's day, Thanksgiving parade balloon deflating. Pops. Like they were like, it was the worst. It's crazy. I don't, cause I, like someone said hanging Chad to me a couple years. I was like, I don't know what the fuck that it was means. me. We recorded yes, it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have it recorded, but so they're recounting because the votes between Al Gore and Bush in Florida were only maybe 600 people. Oh so it was so God. close. So they're recounting, they're recounting, they're doing it over and over. They're deciding what counts as a vote versus what doesn't count as a vote. <sighs> and the Supreme court decides to take Fucking on this case. Florida. I know just cut it off. And Sandra's like, okay, 
We need a vasectomy. Yeah, we do. Cut Florida off in this country. Not that vasectomies cut the penis off, but you know what I mean. Close enough. <laughs> Castration here only. <laughs> um, so it's crazy. Like, she now says the Supreme Court never should have brought this onto our table. We mm. should not have done it. But they have to decide the election. Fuck. She's the deciding what? vote. And she says the, the day to when they have to pick a new president, they're two months in. It's, and she just says we have to stop the recount. But the thing about Sandra, and she regrets all of this. She says, we should have let it play out. The Supreme Court never should have touched this case. She said, what you don't understand is I was looking ahead. And here's what I was looking at. When you have a split decision, the House of Representatives gets the first vote. They were Republican majority, so they would have voted Bush. Mm -hmm. The Senate gets the second vote. They're Democratic majority. They would have voted Gore. And then the third vote goes to the governor of the state where the hang was, which is Jeb Bush. Fuck. She said, I can't let this country think that a monarchy is taking over. Yeah. We need to decide. We can't have yeah. Jeb Bush decide his brother's president. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So, like, she regrets that they even took the case on, but she was looking months in advance and saying, this is going to be a fucking disaster. If I don't do something, I can't believe that everything was that close, that close. 600 votes. Yeah. Unreal. Yes. So her Christmas card that year <laughs> said, may your new year be free of hanging chats. <laughs> <laughs> she hated it. But then her partner, John, started to forget things <gasps> and he gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But she's also feeling really guilty about this presidential election. So she doesn't want to step down while Bush is president. Because now oh, she's feeling fuck. like Al Gore should have gotten to fill my spot. And right. now he can't. Oh, my God. So I'm really upset about that because I kind of threw everything. And then this magazine article comes out that's really unflattering oh. about how she is too in the middle. And the cover of the magazine makes her look like George Washington. And, and it's really <laughs> gross. And... Anyway, like, the thing that we've all seen is a virtue. They're saying she's too in the middle. Too much. We don't want it. Which is what we need. That's what we need. We need yeah, every judge. Like, Why can't every <laughs> Supreme Court justice be in the middle? Oh, my God. I, I hate that we can predict what the Supreme Court is going. I hate Me that too. we can do that. I think, I think that's it, terrible. I think it defeats the purpose of the Supreme <laughs> it Court. It's so That dumb. we can just predict what... They're going to do based on who elected. Like, that's such Listen, bullshit. We need to pick them in childhood and raise them on an island. <laughs> an island alone. Treat them like Olympic judges. <laughs> Olympic figure skating judges. Yes. <laughs> away. Get away. Okay. So then, obviously, Bush is in office, and she's not really supporting what he's doing with terrorists mm -hmm. and, like, POW mm -hmm. camps, and she's, like, really upset about it, but... She is still voting her way. She gets rid of laws against sodomy. Gets then, rid of them. Done. Good. About good. time. My Thank God. Thank you. Didn't good really job. Like, good job. That's still a thing. Today. <laughs> she saves affirmative action in higher education. Says we're not ready yet. Yeah. We're not ready. And she puts, in her opinion, 25 years. Ar completely arbitrary. Mm, okay. Completely arbitrary. But says... I know our country's not there yet, but I don't think this is forever. Yeah. And she did that with all her opinions. She was very specific. Like, this is when it <laughs> ends. And then she's like, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to retire. Like, my husband's not doing good. 
Like, I think I'm, I should go. And they're like, okay, because this is um, Bush's second term. She's okay. like, okay, maybe if a Democrat wins, then I'll go. But it's his second term. Her husband's going downhill. She says she's going to retire. And then her boyfriend dies, ex-boyfriend. Bill Rehnquist dies. Oh my and she's gosh. like, well, shit, now Bill Rehnquist is gone. And so now he, get, he would get to pick two. Now he's now, which we don't want. And he does. Okay. <laughs> now George Bush is picking two Supreme Court judges. And like it's with Rehnquist, it's whatever. It's you can't get right of Rehnquist. He was so right. right. Yeah. But O'Connor, it's easy to get right of O'Connor, yes. which is what ends up happening. Oh, my. God. So and <sighs> it's really sad. And unfortunately, like all these little things are happening and she's the most moderate justice of all time. And people are really sad to see her go. And she even, because only a few years after she leaves, her husband can't even recognize her anymore. She's still alive. And she's like, I should have like, I should have just stayed. Should have stuck it out at least until Obama. But she just like, it's really upsetting. But the reason she left is that she thought the arc of history was bending towards justice. Imagine being a farm girl, getting yeah. into Stanford, not being able to get a job, and then ending up the Supreme Court justice. Mm. And unfortunately, the arc of history has not bent the way that Sandra Day O'Connor thought it would. So even though she stepped down, she still goes to speeches, or did. She's 92 now. <laughs> she still is fighting and talking and she promotes civic civics education in schools. She has genuine faith in the constitution and carries a little copy around in her purse that she pulls out and talks to people about. And she just really thinks that, that we can do this as an American people, but that we are fucking up in the base need to have more people in the middle, which we all agree with. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) It's the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So somebody said to her, what do you want people to remember you by? And she said on my tombstone, I just wanted to say here lies a good judge. (sighs) So, (laughs) she argued that Obama should get a chance to police replace Scalia would when we know that he didn't and it kind of like went to Trump in the end all bullshit her husband died in 2009 in 2013 O'Connor's friend said that she was getting more forgetful and like less conversational by 2017 she needs a wheelchair to move around and she moved into an assisted living home in 2019 John Paul Stevens died who he was the chief um, he was the last judge that was on the bench while she was on, okay. like the original bench that she was on. She's currently 92 years old. But when she was put on the Supreme Court, she was the first woman after 191 <laughs> years of this country having only male Supreme Court justices. And she was perhaps the first and last truly unbiased justice and the type of person that politics needs. That's Sandra Day O'Connor. It's like she's so inspirational, and I'm, but I'm also so depressed after that story. (laughs) Can you even believe that we used to have a person like that? No, I can't because I've never met, I've never seen a person like that. Everything is so black and white right now that it's, 
I get kind of uh, downtrodden. Jaded. I'm jaded <laughs> I get, as fuck. I, that's the perfect term for it, actually, is jaded. And yeah, and it sucks because then I just choose to like wash my hands of a lot of things. That's not what I should be doing. Yeah. But like, I just don't even want to get involved because like it's so frustrating yeah you know she is uh absolutely what we needed at the time but also what we need now so come back come back (laughs) Uh, okay well let's get some more drinks and then we'll talk about someone who was on the opposite side of the coin (laughs) yay back with a new fancy drink it looks so fancy <laughs> this is a fun take on kind of an apple teeny okay well katie <laughs> this is this is the last drink of the season this is the last is drink it of up the to season? par i don't think so okay but that's okay <laughs> i don't know uh, if mine was so we're in the right place we'll see i don't know um i don't even know if you can call it an apple teeny because it has tonic in it but, but just it has like a splash. An, it is an apple so, in a teeny glass. <laughs> this is called the cocktail that has no name. Uh-oh. It is an ounce and a half of gin, okay. an ounce of apple brandy, spiced apple bitters, and a little bit of tonic, and you garnish it with an apple slice. Well, it's beautiful. Cheers. It's like a martini glass. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. It mm. tastes so appley. Interesting. Yeah. But not sour apple, just like apple. No. I yeah. love it. I love it. Because every apple teeny is like a sour apple martini. They're so green. this is kind this of like a more polish, like, yeah. See through teeny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what do you know about Betty for Dan? Um, so I think she wrote that, like, the famous, the famous book you have to read in college, mm-hmm. uh, The Feminist Mystique. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I know there's a lot. In feminism that I am dumb about. Like, there's something about a backpack. What? <laughs> there's something about... I don't know. There's a lot going on. There is. Mm-hmm. And lots of terms. And, I mean, it's a field of study. Yeah. I think <laughs> this is part of a field of study that I am uneducated in, but I dibble-dabble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I don't know much about her life. I know that she is part of the... Um, like a uh, bra burning feminist era. So mm-hmm. she's the same era as Sandra yes. Day mm-hmm. O'Connor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's all I know. I don't know a lot about her life. I feel like in my head, she looks a little Jewish. Does she have she Jewish, Jewish ancestry? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then other than that, that's all I know yep. about her. All right. So I am going to preface this with, with, I was shocked that there wasn't more about her personal life. I know she wrote a memoir. There was, there were books written about her, but none of that has translated to easily accessible Wikipedia articles online. Not worth it then. So, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and again, we do this all in a week. So like, I really did not have time to hunt down these biographies and autobiographies and whatnot. So her personal life is a little lacking in this, um, but we are going to hit some big things. Um, I got most of this from a YouTube video by Erin McKenna. Erin, um, A Wikipedia page. And another by uh, another YouTube video by A Push that really broke down the book The Feminine Mystique for me. Because I've never actually read it. Which is shocking to me because I was a gender studies I was about to say, isn't that like your first so... day of school? <laughs> <laughs> 101, read The Feminine Mystique. No, I never read it. Um, so now I, this is Jane Eyre all over again. Like, I'm <laughs> Idiot. Okay. Welcome to our show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. Betty Naomi Goldstein 
was born on February 4th, 1921 in Peoria, Illinois. Her parents, Harry and Miriam, were from Jewish families with origins in Hungary and Russia. Her father owned a jewelry store and her mother wrote for the society page of a newspaper. That is until she started having children. Ugh. Once Miriam was pregnant for the first time, her husband insisted that she leave her job to take care of the household. She agreed, but according to Betty, she always felt that her mother was bitter at the loss of her job and her sudden economic, total economic dependency on her husband. This translated into her mother becoming a rather cold figure in her life while growing up. So Betty felt a little on the outs at home and also in school. Her position as an intelligent, outspoken Jewish girl made her a bit of a pariah. She was not allowed to enter any sororities or social groups, and she never got asked out on any dates. She was even turned down for the high school newspaper. So she and like she had like six friends uh, that I guess were also kind of on the outskirts. <laughs> they decided that they would start their own paper called Tide in which they discussed their home life rather than what was going on at school. So hmm. I think these are all kids that felt like they were kind of on the outskirts and like they had stuff to say and like they're <laughs> like our problems start at home. They're not even really about school. Listen, <laughs> we're othered and it's yeah. daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> Exclusively daddy issues. So in 1938, Betty attended the historical women's college, Smith College in oh Northampton. Don't you ever wish you could do life over? Yes. I went there once. Maura took me. We went to the greenhouse. Of course. It was spectacular. I would have been such a good feminist if I started younger. I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I was behind. Oh I was behind God. the curve. Nobody told me this was an option to Guys. just be angry all the time. I wrote my, one of my first things I ever wrote for college was anti feminist. No. It's really upsetting. I got married my at like 19. My baby. <laughs> I'm well aware. <laughs> you were there. You were seven. I was there. <laughs> you had braces and a cast. <laughs> Let's be clear. Also, I'm still mad that whoever your person was gave me an updo. What a mistake. I know. Your hair was luscious. They said it was easier. My hair was seven feet long and it's <laughs> thick as hell. There is. I'm sorry. There And they only put it up with bobby pins. There is no way. That an updo was, and everyone else in the bridal party had half up, half down, which is what I wanted. Um, Why was I the only one? Zero idea. That did made see, no sense. Did you see my hair? <laughs> Wild. Wild. Big, thick, highlighted curls. Listen, this was 2007. <laughs> if you want pictures of Ali's wedding, join our Patreon. Oh, buddy. Okay, tell me everything I should change about my wedding. And go. <laughs> Nothing. It was perfect. So... Uh, she is now at Smith College, where she absolutely thrived. She loved being in college. She won a scholarship in her first year for outstanding academic performance. In her second year, she became interested in poetry and had many poems published in campus publications. Hmm. In 1941, she became editor-in-chief of SCAN, which is Smith College Associated News, and her editorials or the editorials under her control became more political, taking a strong anti-war stance and occasionally causing controversy. 
she was also famously becoming more and more involved with Marxist circles. Uh, some of her friends, even at like this time and when she eventually goes to California, were investigated by the FBI. Ooh, <laughs> damn. She graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa in 1942 with a major in psychology. In 1943, she spent a year at the University of California, Berkeley, on a fellowship for graduate work in psychology with Eric Erickson. He is a famous psychologist who coined the term identity crisis. Mm -hmm. We know him. We love him. I guess. I don't know. I didn't research him at all. Yeah. I've, I mean, I have like, one daily, yeah. so I don't know. <laughs> I have plenty of identity crises, so <laughs> yes. Um, but before she could continue her studies... A boy came along and pressured Betty into turning down a PhD fellowship that she had been offered. Why? Why did he do that? I don't even know. Because she doesn't even be with him for very long. But after she left school, she became a journalist for leftists and labor union publications. Between 1943 and 46, she wrote for Federated Press. And between 46 and 52, she worked for the United electrical workers news so she is a journalist yes at heart yes okay absolutely so that's where she starts writing okay interesting so like she's writing in college and then she comes out and she's writing for like little little paper things Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. and around exactly got it one of her assignments was to report on the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is interesting, uh, especially given her, like, Marxist connections. <laughs> For sure. While she was working at this organization, she met a theater producer named Carl Friedan, and they married in 1947. Unlike her mother, she did not give up her job after getting married and having kids. She had her first son, Daniel, in 1948. But when she became pregnant with her second child in 1952, she decided to become a freelance journalist, and she wrote for well-known publications such as Cosmopolitan. Whoa! I really? know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, for years, she is writing. She's raising her three... Ch- she has three children eventually, just like Sandra. Oh, my but God. But in 1957, <laughs> something changed. It was her 15th college reunion, and Betty decided to do a retrospective on her classmates, a sort of, where are they now? (laughs) And are they satisfied with how their lives turned out? (laughs) Embarrassing. (laughs) Turns out a lot of them weren't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Many of these, I mean, graduates from Smith, highly educated women, had become housewives that only were working inside the home, which is, of course, not a universal bad thing. But the problem Betty saw with what she was finding is that many of these women had felt pressured to leave their jobs and stay at home. And they were unsatisfied with how their life was going. They were feeling depressed. They're feeling sad. They are feeling unfulfilled. But they hadn't quite made the connection because they're like, I don't know why I'm feeling this way because I have accomplished what I'm supposed to. They're like, I have the 2.5 kids, a husband to come home to, you know, a house to call my own or like an adult, whatever the, the, everything. They're like, I'm Betty Draper, like where Betty Draper existed, but they're like, I am living this dream. Like why am I not happy? They don't have a podcast. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's why. (laughs) 
And so Betty started seeing this trend among her classmates. And she was like, okay, so they're at home. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not working and they're unhappy. This is what Betty would label the problem that has no name, Hmm. which is why I named the cocktail after it. Of course it is. (laughs) So she starts researching this and she starts publishing articles about this phenomenon, about women who are supposed to be 100% satisfied and they're not. And soon women are reading the, like reading her articles and they're writing to her saying, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm not alone in being unhappy. And I don't think we realize how many women were feeling this way. Like I found out just this year that my own grandmother was experiencing something like this. She was a young married woman with two kids living in a townhouse and she was so unhappy that my mom told me about a time where she Like they had to call the hospital and they took her away in an ambulance because she was like almost comatose. Like she was so depressed. Bored. Yeah. And like my grandmother is like, we always equate her like Queen Elizabeth. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like (laughs) she is very homemaker-esque. Yes. She's exactly what you would think of. But she's also so witty and snarky that you could see this eating away at her day after day with nothing to fuel her intellect. And it's not like today, like today, like if when I'm off in the summer, I can post pictures of what me and my kids are doing. And it like, it's almost like a job. Mm -hmm. It's like, look at me, look at me showing you how good of a mom I am. There isn't that then you are just alone all day with children and no one to talk to except for your neighbors who also are terrible. Yeah. And, like, my grandmother was a person who, like, you know, we had long conversations this year on Thanksgiving about how she, like, grew up on a farm and she's doing all this stuff. She's working with her hands, you know, and she's, like, has responsibilities. And then she is now in this cramped townhouse with two kids and, like, her husband is away all the time because he is, like, doing police work or security work or whatever Mm -hmm. my grandfather is doing at any given time. Who knows? Um, I should really figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But- I mean, I will tell you that when the kids were young, I could never replicate the feeling in the pit of my stomach. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't make it through the day. Yeah. Like it was like, I, I've never, I haven't felt it since. Yeah. Like it's terrible when you're yeah. like alone with two children that depend on you for life and they can't speak to you like in a full sentence. It's crazy. I can't imagine. I'm deathly afraid of it. Some people fucking love it. Some people are like, Linda loves it. Linda's like, I love being a mom. This is great. I like them. The younger, the better. And I'm like, no. What? Yeah. I want them when they're like 21 and ready to go hang. Yeah. I like. My kids are ready to drink with me and they're like 12. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, they need some alcohol. I know. Let's pump it up. Calm them down. Like, (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Their angst is real and it's exactly mine. I love it. I love it. It's real teenage power. I feel so bad because. Caroline is me and I hated myself when I was her Uh age so I'm like (gasps) she's so much she's so much and I was so much and I know it and it's so hard because I want to shake her and be like stop it (laughs) Marjorie goes a sister goes I feel so bad for Caroline sometimes because everybody's just so mad we're all so mad at her her. it's not her fault and I was the same and I think that's why like 
I have such it's like you can do better. It's like, <laughs> and it's also the the impatience of like you will and I she will be better. Yeah. And that's like the hard thing too is like my life got so good after I went through all that bullshit. So I also like don't want her to skip it. Yeah. Middle school I, sucks. <laughs> I I don't want her to skip it, but I also need her to skip it. It's like I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> So anyways, um, wow, that took a turn. Personal corner. Personal corner. My grandma was not okay. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. My grandma was not okay and my niece is not okay. (laughs) No one is okay in this fucking family. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We're great. Um, (laughs) We become great. This is the thing. Our family, the Dinkelmans, the Baines, the Greenwoods, this whole intertwined phenomena. <laughs> what are we even? We age like fine wine. Oh, we do. You know, we're absolutely awful. We're grapes in the beginning. <laughs> Give us some tannins. A terrible, <laughs> wonderful, awful idea. That was so Grinch of you. God, Seuss is here. Woo! Okay. okay. Here we are. So... <laughs> So Betty is finding out that a lot of women feel this way. So she takes her research and her findings and like these little articles that she's kind of writing about it. And she puts it all together in 1963 in her most famous work, The Feminine Mystique. And this was about this very problem and the plight of women in society. So the phrase The Feminine Mystique was coined by Betty to describe the assumptions that women would be fulfilled from their housework, marriage, sexual lives, and children. (laughs) Like, she's like, that is an assumption we are making in society. Like, the prevailing belief at this time was that women who were truly feminine shouldn't want to work or get an education or have political opinions. Like, they're very, it's a very Gaston type of thinking. <laughs> and Betty wanted to prove that women were unsatisfied and that they didn't feel comfortable voicing their opinions and their feelings. Not every woman felt like June Cleaver. And now with Betty Friedan telling them that they weren't alone, the cult of domesticity started to crumble and the second wave of feminism began. So that is something she was really credited with the start of the second wave feminism with this book. Like, I can't overestimate how important this book was and how groundbreaking it so was. So it's like the that conference in New York uh-huh. and now this book. And now this. <laughs> <laughs> now she wasn't the only person to talk about this though. To be clear, Edith Stern was writing about women being household slaves in 1949. But the feminine mystique was different because women all across America were reading this book and connecting with it and becoming inspired and feeling less alone which i think is very important of course so the key points from this book if you haven't read it because i haven't either are of course uh, the problem that has no name which is the widespread unhappiness of american housewives she also talks about how many women find this feeling to be very isolating a lot of these women were like no but i'm the problem like it's not like it's just that i'm wired differently And so a lot of women were putting this uh, undue burden on themselves of like, well, no, I'm just messed up. You know, like I'm sure my grandmother felt this way of like, well, why can't, why is it so easy for my sister teen? And like, 
I'm struggling. I felt like that when I hated motherhood. I was yeah. embarrassed. I was like, You're my mom had four kids. Exactly my mother-in-law had four kids. Why don't I like kids? Exactly. And I think that that's that generation, their housewifery dilemma, the problem that has no name, is our generation's like postpartum depression. Yeah. I think a lot of people especially like from when like the time you were having kids like didn't realize that like postpartum depression was a thing and it was real and a lot of women experience it and there are resources because like seeing you go through it and then having other people connect with you and being like oh my gosh like I'm not alone was like that was very eye-opening for me. It's groundbreaking. Know? Yeah. Just to like, I mean, for me, like I'm not yeah. saying it's groundbreaking for Katie. It was groundbreaking It's groundbreaking for, for me who has no children. Listen, I'm glad I was a force in your life. <laughs> you have no idea. You made me not want to have kids. My <laughs> God, I, I literally want to die about having kids every day. And now I work with them, but I work with the middle ones. Those are the worst. No, they're the best ones. You're crazy. Once they can talk and have their own opinions, but they don't know what their opinion is yet, Ooh, and you get to tweak you it. You get to mold it. Ooh. Okay. So you're a control freak. Yeah. Okay. Did anybody ever say any different? <laughs> Has anybody ever said any different? <laughs> Never once. Okay. So it's an isolating feeling. Then she talks about <laughs> the advertising industry and how it's run by men, which reinforces society's views of women. I mean, we've all seen by now, like the fucked up ads from the we 50s post and them. 60s. We post them on we our post Instagram them all the time. You know, so like we have these advertisements. They're like the only thing a woman wants for Christmas is a new Swiffer vacuum or whatever the hell it is, you know. <laughs> and then there's also the women on TV and radio who, like we mentioned, June Cleaver and and like then there was like Donna Reed who got all the housework done and big skirts and high heels with a big smile on their face. And they always looked perfect. And like being a mom, being a housemaker was all they needed to be extremely happy. Which is so funny when you think about because those women were literally working actresses who were like making a living on their own. It's frustrating as hell. It's very frustrating. So, and then she also talks about, you know, that this whole view of women is also supported by famous psychologists like Freud. Freud purported this very false narrative that women were childlike and they're made for housewifery and not much more. Childlike? They, he said we were childlike. I've never heard that. I had never heard it either. I mean, so. I'm childish. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't know that I am the standard, though, to judge all women. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody is, to be Let's clear. Sandra. <laughs> um, so, and then there was also, like, this sociological theory that she pushed back against that said, like, well, we have to have gender roles because society would collapse if women, if women didn't perform their function in it. Like, they're basically saying if men didn't go to work and women didn't stay home and take care of the kids, then society itself would collapse. And well, she's like, that's bullshit. <laughs> let's also be clear that Iceland experienced this and they did they let did. women yes <laughs> they did say women stop doing your jobs and society did fall apart yes they did oh my god but gosh. that was our choice yes <laughs> we chose that's that. like if we all disappeared one day you would be fucked <laughs> so she also pointed the reckoning is yeah. what i call that <laughs> she also pointed out in this book that if a housewife is unhappy 
that unhappiness has the potential to spread to the children and it starts a very negative cycle. And I imagine this came from Betty's (laughs) own experience. She's like, my mom was pissed that she couldn't keep her job. And then my kids, you know, and then I felt that burden, you know, so she is now talking about her own experience. So then by the end of the book, she advocates a new plan for women. She says, don't become trapped in your role as a housewife. Don't find fulfillment in marriage and children alone. Find meaningful work that utilizes your brain and your mental capacity. Now, of course, there was backlash to this book. Many women who did find fulfillment in marriage and motherhood felt like they were being attacked or told that they were wrong or frankly, even worse, stupid. Yeah, your brains are enjoying their life. Advanced enough. And it's yeah. like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm not smart enough to know that I shouldn't be loving my kids. Like one person said, women who valued their roles as mothers and housewives interpreted Fredan's message as one that threatened their stability, devalued their labor, and disrespected their intelligence. It's Which true. I, yes. This is true. This is something, speaking of my lineage, (laughs) my mom was talking recently to me about how she felt very excluded by the second wave of feminism because she was like, I loved being a mom. You know, she said, and my dad told me this, like when my mom had kids, her personality flourished, which, you know, is something I would love to happen to me. (laughs) If I could guarantee that I would do it in a heartbeat, but I don't know if that would happen to me, you know, but he is like, when she had kids, like she, my mom, I didn't, I can't even imagine. My mom used to be a shy person. I will say though, (laughs) I I think your mom is an an amazing, amazing Mm -hmm. mom. But I do know that she did tell me one time that she loved watching soap operas during the day. Oh yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. your dad was at work and he did not like that she was watching soap operas. So like he would, she would turn off the TV so that it wasn't hot. Like Mm -hmm. when he came home, so he wouldn't know that she was watching soap (laughs) operas. So it's like, she loved being a mom, but she had her thing. She did have her thing. And I think you're allowed, you're allowed to have your things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's what's so, I think that's what's hard about this is like women felt insulted because they felt like they weren't, smart enough because they were a mom but it's not like just a mom like unpaid labor this is unpaid labor Mm -hmm. motherhood is unpaid labor yeah no question about it well and that's the whole thing too it's like it's also like someone telling you like everything that you do in a day is worthless and like that is a feeling that fucking sucks and do you know who's telling you that your husband yeah not the government, not mm-hmm. this woman who wrote Feminist mm-hmm. Mystique. Mm-hmm. It's the guy who comes home and is mad that the dishes aren't done and the laundry's not done and, yeah. like, yeah, dinner's not cooked yet. Like, yeah, okay. And like, here's at the that point, he's your employer. Yeah, your husband mm-hmm. should not be your employer. No. That's the point of this book. It is the point of the book. Yes, absolutely. And that's why, like, people got the wrong message from it, which is upsetting. But your husband should not be your employer. No, and because here's the thing, it's like I totally understand this kind of backlash of like i get it i would be insulted i would be yes (laughs) yeah and you know but i also think that some of the reactions were very extreme on this side you know like like, phyllis like (laughs) phyllis you know like some people accused her of trying to destroy the american family which i think is a little intense you know like (laughs) you know so there was a point where it's like 
well, no, we love being like, you know, a house that's like, you're both trying to speak for all women, and I need you to both stop. Everybody should stop. She's not Everybody a vibrator. Needs She's to not s- actually destroying stop. the American family. Exactly. <laughs> Give her some batteries. She'll be fine. Jesus. So these women are feeling offended. But then there's also this other host of women who are feeling excluded and ignored, which we really need to talk about. The feminine mystique was obviously geared towards women who were upper middle class educated women who might very well have this option to make their lives more fulfilling with work that suited their intellect and their college degree. But there was this whole other bunch of women, mainly women of color and women of a lower socioeconomic class that were kind of like, We've had jobs and have been working this whole time. (laughs) Yeah. It's so upsetting. We have been doing the work like these unsatisfied housewives that you're talking about. We're their nannies. (laughs) We're actually doing the child care for, you know, it's like we're actually cleaning their homes. Exactly. They're unsatisfied because they're fucking sitting around. Yeah. (laughs) While we're doing all the work. It's so unsatisfying. Of course it is. So I'm going to quote the black feminist writer, Bell Hooks. Hey, Bell. <laughs> lowercase Bell, by the way, and lowercase Hooks. Wow. I know. We I... have to cover Bell Hooks. Right on so, the list. I'm yes. going to put it, I'm put gonna it on flip. the list. Put it on the list. I'm putting her right there with Vanna White. Yes. <laughs> and Phyllis Schlafly. <laughs> she did not speak of the needs of women without men. Without children, without homes, she ignored the existence of all non-white women and poor white women. She did not tell readers whether it was more fulfilling to be a maid, a babysitter, a factory worker, a clerk, or a prostitute than to be a leisure class housewife. She made her plight and the plight of white women like herself synonymous with a condition affecting all American women. In doing so, oh, sorry, in so doing, she deflected attention away from her classism, her racism, her sexist attitudes towards the masses of American women. In the context of her book, Friedan makes clear that the women she saw as victimized by sexism were college-educated white, white women. women. Yeah. I. She's not wrong. She's not wrong. So we know that intersectionality is not Betty Friedan's bag. (laughs) No. She's not wrong, though, in the sense that, like, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was making the statements, like, the pedestal you put me on is is a cage. We talk about the problem with pedestals constantly on this podcast. It is, like, white women are supposed to fulfill a certain box, Mm -hmm. and that's the box we fill, and it is not easier than the struggle of Mm -hmm. women of color Mm -hmm. at all. It's Mm -hmm. a totally different struggle. Mm -hmm. It just exists. Yeah. Both exist. Ooh. Yeah, I know. And so as Betty Friedan progresses in the feminist movement, you know, we see that there is this very big problem. And then there's other problems with her inclusivity. She had a real problem with lesbians. Oh, she, ad- I know she admitted that the idea of lesbians made her uneasy and it affected her politics. She often tried to exclude them from groups because she felt like it would distract from the issues that she thought 
or most important, such as abortion, childcare, and equal pay. And this is a reoccurring issue with every new wave of feminism. We saw it with the suffragists, and we see it still today. Leaders of movements, movements cherry-picking whose rights we're going to fight for. And it's never okay, and it's always frustrating, and it's always like, well, us now and you later. Somebody's you always know? left in the dust. Someone is always left in the dust, and it's very frustrating. And usually it's the less fortunate because what, yeah. what everybody's trying to do is get the patriarchy to accept them. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Appeal to the majority. Right. Why are we trying to force them to accept us when we should right. just be forcing them? <laughs> You're trying them. <laughs> to appeal to the majority while excluding the most minority. Right. <laughs> like the people that need it the most. It doesn't like, make any sense. But you just, I mean, okay. It's, yeah. Yeah. So. Mm. In 1966, uh, she co-founded and became the first president of the National Organiz- Organization for Women. So this is now. This is like the big pushers I, I of the ERA. I know. She came up with the name. She came up with the statement of purpose, both of which she like famously scribbled on hotel napkins. <laughs> now lobbied for the enforcement of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Equal Pay Act of 1963. So these were the first two major legislative victories of this movement, and they forced the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to stop ignoring and start treating claims of sexual discrimination with dignity and urgency. So basically what was happening, they were like, now existed because they had these laws on the books, but nobody was doing anything about it. Mm. And it was very frustrating. They're like, okay, so yeah, we have these laws, but like no one's enforcing it. Who are the watchdogs? Right. Who is making sure that there's not actually sexual discrimination going on in the workplace? Nobody. Well, it's funny too, because I, uh, I breeze over a couple of lawsuits and like one of the ones that O'Connor had to oversee was how we treat sexual um assault in mm-hmm. in public schools yeah wow and she had to deal with that like oh my how gosh. do we do it who do we blame what happens the all these kids are minors yeah so it's like these things are happening like they're yes, coinciding they're coinciding absolutely and now also help women get equal access to public places for example the oak room at the plaza hotel in new york held men's only lunches on weekdays so like <laughs> Monday through Friday, you could only get lunch if you were a man. Sounds like a bore. Until 1969. Stop it! Friedan and other members of now staged a protest. They're like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, that's ridiculous. You can't eat there if you're a woman Monday through Friday. Condoleezza <laughs> Rice couldn't get a freaking jacket for the masters. I know. It's, I know. And it was like the, no. But her later, Allie, her later. <laughs> this i cannot when you're like i don't get it i know i don't get it i know so she's doing good work within the organization but after a few years there was a bit of divide within the group a lot of black women in the organization were pointing out that betty's efforts were more you know into getting middle class white women access to jobs when they should be focusing more on the minority groups that needed them more So in 1960 down, she stepped down as the president of the National Organization of Women. But she was still very active in the organization. Betty and now were instrumental 
in the U.S. Senate's rejection of President Nixon's Supreme Court nominee, G. Harold Carswell. So this is a man that had a terrible history with racism and anti-Semitism. Right. And he had very openly opposed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And Betty herself went before the Senate and she testified very passionately. And she was like, this type of person, this kind of racist, this anti-Semite cannot make the laws for our nation. Like this would be a travesty. And right, but we let Clarence Thomas do it. Sure, even sure. He's Leader, raping Anita Leader, Hill just you know, on the side. It's fine. You know, it's it's okay. fine. Everybody's fine with it. But Betty and didn't help. Brett have it all, no less. I know. But, I can't. But Betty helped this one. So she. <laughs> Good job, Betty. So her testimony did help sink his nomination, which is great. You know, we'll a win is a win, as they like to say yeah. on TikTok. <laughs> Then on August 26, 1970, Betty organized the Women's Strike for Equality. So this is a huge strike. And in her speech, she said, all kinds of women's groups all over the country will be using this week on August 26, particularly to point out those areas in women's life which are still not addressed. For example, a question of equality before the law. We are interested in the Equal Rights Amendment. The question of child care centers, which are totally inadequate in this society and which women require if they are going to assume their rightful position in terms of helping in decisions of the society. The question of a woman's right to control her own reproductive processes, that is, laws prohibiting abortion in the state of putting them into criminal statuses, I think that would be a statute that we would be addressing ourselves to. So I think... Individual women will react differently. Some will not cook that day. Some will engage in dialogue with their husbands. Some will be out at rallies and demonstrations that will be taking place all over the countries. Others will be writing things that will help them define where they want to go. Some will be pressuring their senators and their congressmen to pass legislations that affect women. I don't think you can come up with any one point women will be doing their own thing in their own way. So she's organizing this big strike and it's kind of funny because she's saying that, you know, like women can do, you know, like whatever kind of like protests that they want to do. But like, she's also like kind of judgmental woman who don't just like do exactly what she's doing. You know, (laughs) can you please do what I do? (laughs) You can, you can like have fun Mm -hmm. ignoring cooking for your husband, but can you please? Yeah. (laughs) But you know, like this is a big deal like she does do very big things and also like around this time in the 70s she helped form NARAL which mm. is now known as NARAL Pro-Choice America yes and I used to work, work there, there. <laughs> NARAL is an important organization that I want to point out because they are focused on lobbying efforts to protect abortion rights so we all think of like Planned Parenthood, which is so important because they are made up of the like abortion providers and like the like information. Givers. I, Planned Parenthood is so incredibly important, but also like you need someone who like gets into the underbelly of the government. Like <laughs> when I worked there, like I realized that I hate lobbying. It's the worst thing in the world. You literally have to go to different like 
senators' offices and you go in and you go, hi, I'm here to push the pro-choice agenda. And they go, great, here's our intern, Maggie, who is in charge of listening to you. And you talk to an intern and lay out all your points. And (laughs) it's so fucked up. There's no point. And I'm not saying that it's pointless because it isn't. You know, people need to do it. People need to do it because there were some times where we did sit down with the lawmaker themselves, like, you know, and we got to talk. And obviously, like our leader, Diana, was like doing so much more than like us interns. Like we were the ones talking to the (laughs) other interns, you know, (laughs) but that's the bullshit work that needs not bullshit, but like it's the work that needs to be done. It's the grunt work. It's the grunt work. And like. Nayarol does do that and I like didn't know that Betty was you know instrumental in that like really getting off the ground which is very cool that is very cool um so I remember support your local Nayarol chapter you working there <laughs> I remember being like yes <laughs> it was a very exciting time um <laughs> so she was involved in abortion rights in the 70s but then in 2000 she started talking about how she felt that the women's movement now was too focused on abortion and like that they should be trying to work with people like the Catholic church who are notoriously anti-choice. I don't understand her exact logic there. Like, I think that this is not across maybe, the aisle. This it's is not a, across. The, yeah, you're this right. This is a doctrine difference. Yes. That's, that's crazy. Yes. I know. I couldn't quite make heads or tails of it. I mean, I I guess I understand meeting somebody that is willing to listen to you, but like that doesn't mean that an entire establishment is willing to listen yeah. to you. So in 1971, uh, Betty, along with other leading women's movement leaders, including Gloria Steinem, founded the National Women's Political Caucus. Um, Gloria. Her her and Gloria had a famous kind of rivalry. I feel like they (laughs) would not like each other. They did not. Um, Gloria's like, what the fuck are you doing? And also, like, there's just a lot of bullshit going on. Gloria had, like, like, an outline. Yeah. She, like, knew what she wanted to do from A to B. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and it wasn't the Catholic Church <laughs> or Hugh Hefner. She fucking hated Hugh Hefner. Yes, she did. So in 1972, she ran unsuccessfully as a delegate to mm. the 1972 Democratic National Convention. Sure. Uh, but she was very supportive of Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, who we did a whole episode ah! on. She's the best. If there's ah. no chair at the table, bring one. Yes. <laughs> Um, and yeah, she did like kind of like make some speeches at this thing. I don't know. This whole time period is kind of, uh, was confusing to me in the nineties. She joined the feminists for free expression in opposing their pornography victims compensation act, which I did not know about. This was legislation proposed by Mr. Mitch McConnell himself. Vomit. Where's his chin even? Who knows? So this basically said that women who were attacked by men who watched pornography, they could sue the company that made the porn. It would be like if the victim of a drunk driving accident like sued Budweiser because like the person who was driving the car was drinking Budweiser beer. So if a man (laughs) watches pornography, Uh he can sue the person who made the porn. The victim. So if a man watches pornography, goes out and rapes a woman. Oh, I see. She can sue the 
maker of the porn that Why he was not just watching. the man? But also it's like, where, who's connecting these dots? Like, not a soul. This is in 1990s. Like, so who, there's not even like cookies or internet search history. Like, no, internet's brand new. Casey Anthony got off for murder because she used <laughs> Firefox instead of Internet Explorer. Like, nobody <laughs> like, no. knows what's going on. Casey Anthony, also on the list. Fuck <laughs> her to the core. Super fuck her. But I can't wait to do an episode on her. I have. I have to do it. I, you I'm sorry. Ha- I don't want to do it. You have, have to do it. You have to do it. I have, have so it. many strong feelings. <laughs> but anyways. Okay. So, and also her, I'm sorry, her new special is bullshit. She is so money hungry. I know. She I murdered know. her daughter. With duct tape on her mouth. In the trunk of her car. There's okay. duct tape on her mouth. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Gone. We'll we- save this for family dinner Sunday. <laughs> Oh, yes. at my house. We'll yell at we'll yell at family dinner. <laughs> Just so you know, it's Nike at Christmas. We're having a Swedish meatballs. Oh so, shit! Anyways, love that. I don't even remember where I was. But anyways, but the, this Casey whole Anthony. thing. <laughs> so this <laughs> this piece of legislature is ridiculous. Okay. And she goes, you know, like she goes, this isn't helping anyone. She goes, if anything, it's sus- it's suppressing free speech. Like, and she said to suppress free speech in the name of, in the name of protecting women. Cause she's like, this is a charade. Sure. She goes is dangerous and wrong, you know, because it was, she goes, this is going to harm people. Like this is not helping anyone. Mm. So Betty became famous for her work and her writing. But she also became famous for her distinct personality. Oh. <laughs> the most common word described, you used to describe her, is abrasive. <laughs> oh. She also could be described as, quote, thin-skinned and imperious, subject to screaming fits of temperament. Mm. She was a very passionate person, but that passion made her, you know, it made her successful, but it also made her fail at various points in her life. It made her a difficult person to be around. She was very angry and she could get aggressive, especially if you didn't agree with her and if you didn't respect her position in the feminist movement. Mm. Her husband, Carl, said that I think that's his name. I don't even remember. I don't know that I it matters. That I didn't even look back. Her husband. <laughs> Her husband, Carl. And, <laughs> hey, Carl. <laughs> said that that was one of the reasons that their marriage did not last. Oh, shit. And in a famous debate with anti-equal rights amendment crusader Phyllis Shafley. Ugh. <laughs> Betty lost her cool and told Phyllis that she wanted to burn her at the stake. <laughs> Only the bad girls get burned. Here's the thing. <laughs> like, the co- like it's so frustrating because, like, pe- someone said that, like, she puts her foot in her mouth all the time. Hmm. And, like, she just gets a little too crazy. Mm-hmm. The co-founder of Ms. Magazine, Letty Cotton Pogerbin said one of the things that really bummed her out about Betty was that for a women's rights activist, she was really mean to a lot of women. No. She even yelled at Julia Child once. No. She told her that she wasn't helping the women's cause by going on TV and cooking for people. Yes, she is. And it's like, no, but she is because she's a woman in business. Like, 
Oh, that's shitty. Benny became the poster child for the angry feminist. Mm. The woman who our generation (laughs) of parents warned us about. She was loud and aggressive and couldn't keep a husband. She is the woman who was credited with starting the second wave of feminism. And she is also its cautionary tale. Mm. And that is an image that unfortunately still plagues anyone who claims to be a feminist. Like she is, I hate to say it, kind of the reason that it has become a dirty word. And here's the thing. As I have said on here before, I am not a proponent of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I don't think we need to throw away Betty or the feminist mystique, feminine mystique, whatever, because truly that book and her were groundbreaking for many women in America. And as abrasive and aggressive and angry as she was, it helped her get a lot of shit done. And I think sometimes you need that person to go too far so then you can kind of rein it back and find the middle. She was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in 1993. She received a few honorary doctorates, and in 2014, she was named one of the 75 most important women of the past 75 years by Glamour magazine. On February 4th, 2006, Betty died from congenital heart failure. She was 85 years old. Her legacy is complicated, but it's important. And I think she said it best herself when she said, the truth is that I've always been a bad-tempered bitch. (laughs) Same! Same! And that's the story of Betty Friedan, the bad feminist! Oh my god! I love that. What a fun and disconcerting story. (laughs) I was having such a hard time this week. I'm sure! I was she having a did, wonderful time. She did so much good, but she was also so bad. Well, like we talked about so many people like that. I it, know. It, no I know. one person can well, be who they okay. are. It's the problem with pedestals. Like uh, you want to put. Oh, sorry. Bless you. Thank you. You want to put someone like Betty for Dan up on this pedestal and be like, she spoke for all women. She spoke to women, like all this stuff. And she, and she, cause she did do so many great things, yeah. but also like, in order to have a full, complete history, we have got to finish the story. And the finishing of the story is that she did not speak for all women. She actually actively excluded a lot of women. <laughs> <laughs> she, she actively only and, spoke for herself. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways. Are you ready to do our last ever horoscopes? All right. <clears throat> I'm ready. We're ready for, for horoscopes. The last horoscope. Last time we ever have to do this shit. This was really the hard, guys. Time. I need you to understand how hard this was. It's really hard to find the day and year. And I need you to understand that I completely forgot this week. Oh, God. And I have spent the last 20 minutes looking this up. It's totally fine. Okay. So my lady is an Aquarius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this says, Jupiter is now aligning with your natal Mercury. Love it. A new project at work may well seem ambitious to a friend or loved one. But luck should be on your side today. So let no one undermine your confidence or make you overcautious. With quick-witted Mercury in alignment with the lucky planet Jupiter, you can make progress if you have the courage to take action. Have faith in yourself and you should be 
in the right place at the right time. Wow. Interesting. I, yeah, I, I mean, I do think she was in the right place at the right time for a very specific group of people. <laughs> <laughs> Just not everybody wanted her there yeah. <laughs> in that place. Okay, so for Sandra, she's in Aries, mm. obviously, March 26, 1930. It says you have a passionate and independent nature. You're resourceful and calm when you are motivated by something. Some may say that you never get tired, but this is because, as it happens with this and other weaknesses, you manage to hide them very well. It's important to you that you project an amazing image of yourself all the time. Damn. That aligns with her so well. That's like who she her is to a T. To a T. Damn, I can't even believe it. It's like I wrote yeah. it just for fun. Yeah, <laughs> like that's who she is. It's like I work for Cosmo. <laughs> it's like if I was writing a toast for this show right now, that's what I would have written. Okay, so let's toast our ladies. No, we we need to talk about them together. Oh yeah, in a little segment we that. like to call just. <laughs> Just the two of us. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Just the two of us. Season 13. This is Ruth Bader Ginsburg all over again. <laughs> We're off to but it. I've had a lot less to drink. What's happening? It's okay. been a night. Okay. So I could not believe how in sync their lives <laughs> I know. were. But they were on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Because, all right, I'm just going to say, say it. it. Sandra was like, I need to play the game. And Betty was like, what if we just picked up the Scrabble board and threw it out the window? <laughs> Sandra's like, I get seven letters. Yeah. I get to flip them over one at a time. <laughs> Meanwhile, Betty is like, pick up all letters. the letters are blank. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that is the key difference because they were both smart, capable young women who thrived in college. They were and both married with three kids and I were know. on the, the journalist path in college. But I think that Sandra was taught at a young age of like, you need to solve your own problems and like, you need to like, you know, you need to change the tire on your car if it gets a flat and be here on time. Mm. And I don't know if Betty was given that, you know, exact education. But I also, I don't want to say that, like, Sandra should have existed and Betty shouldn't have. Because I think, obviously, Sandra in this scenario comes out looking much better. Mm. Um, I think we need both. I think that... They both need to happen. They both need to happen. Because you need to see Betty being so not in the middle because if there is like a fault that people say of Sandra Day O'Connor is that she's too in the middle. She's too bipartisan. She's too even keeled. And like, sometimes you need someone passionate pushing through some kind of agenda because if we didn't have those people, nothing would get done. And like there's also <laughs> like, there's also like, if I'm a normal ass housewife in mm -hmm. America, that's feeling alone. Yeah. My role model is not Sandra Day O'Connor, right? Because she's a housewife, but she is not at home alone. No. Her husband supports her and she's working and he's working yeah. and she's in the fucking Supreme Court. You know yeah. what I am? I'm making TV dinners yeah. on a tray and watching Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. I need support. And yeah. she was not the one making me feel better. She's making me feel worse, actually. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think she did amazing things for America, mm -hmm. but not for those 
rich white women that Betty is supporting. I know it sounds stupid, but they were falling apart. Yeah, they were. And like, I frankly don't want anyone to be falling apart. No, like, not a soul. I am like, I'm sad that Betty only dealt with white women. I know. But it's like, I'm sad it is about what it. it is. But, and they needed her. But here's the thing. I am in a, I'm looking right now into current America and like, I'm very worried about these women who are like very pro-Trump, very fighting against things that would work to their advantage. And I'm like, someone needs to talk to them. Someone needs to reach out, not to be like, you're wrong. You should be liberal. But like, (laughs) you know, there are women suffering all the time. And like, sometimes you do need someone to just be very specific and like, you're having a problem. I see your problem, especially when it's something that is a mass cultural phenomenon, because I think that that's something we don't appreciate about Betty's work is that like, it's not like she came up with this out of nowhere, you know, <laughs> it's like we literally have, you know, June Cleaver and, uh, you know, what's her face, Donna Reed on TV promoting these images. So They're the Stepford wives, they are the Stepford wives. And so it's not like, this came out of nowhere. She's like, there's an active societal push for upper middle class educated white women to be this certain way. And I think that that's what she was when your husband's pushing home, against. They, yeah. Your kids should be quiet. You should be dressed. The vacuuming should be done. The mm-hmm. dinner should be on the stove. Like there's a list I on, in housekeeping magazine yeah. that comes up every now and again. I remember it used to be printed out and put on my fridge because I thought it was so funny. Yeah. Like I was like, this is absurd. Your kids should have bows in their hair. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean? That's what should be done by the time yeah. my husband gets home from work. I'm also working. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's like, those women absolutely needed to be spoken to. Yeah. They like women like my grandmother needed someone to be like, Hey, it's okay that you're feeling like not okay when you're supposed to be living your best life. Right. (laughs) But that's why we need people at the other extreme and in the middle, like Sandra, who are like, yeah, but you're forgetting about people. You're forgetting about people who do enjoy housework. You're forgetting about people who have been working this entire time. Like, we need people all over the spectrum to speak up for people we don't know exist. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, I agree. I don't know. I and, it, and I think it's interesting because you like you have Phyllis Shafley in both of these stories who is like an iconic Vomit. Like, <laughs> villain against women. Like, <laughs> you know, and like Betty was in this big debate with her and like, Betty kind of lost her cool and like the it's kind of seen as like you know like she made a fool of herself in this debate but she also points out Phyllis's hypocrisy because she's like you're out here working you're out here working and like going across the country and like fighting for women to be doing exactly not what you're doing here you right. know and it's like there is uh, a, a, hip- a hypocrisy in that and that hypocrisy is what led sandra to not even engage with her yeah sandra's like that she was like i'm not eh, gonna deal with it i'm not even i'm just gonna do it a different way so i don't even have to talk to you well and here's the thing because you need someone big and loud who is gonna debate phyllis shafley because you also can't let her just get away with what no she doing. can't get she can't just can't let her get away with the it. women in america so you need someone big and loud and then you need someone behind the scenes who's like I'm going to do all the work, but no one's going to know. And it's going to be the work that <laughs> Phyllis Shafley doesn't know is being done. Exactly. Because the problem is, like, or the good thing is, Betty had Phyllis looking in the other direction. 
while Sandra could get it done. Exactly. She was the decoy. Like You're Betty's so right. the decoy so that Sandra can get the work done without Phyllis knowing. And yeah. then it's done and we've already she's yeah. already lost. Phyllis lost before she even yeah. knew it happened. Exactly. Because I also think it's so interesting that Sandra, you know, made a point of being like, I'm not a feminist because people like Betty made feminist a dirty word yeah. with their bullshit, you know, mm-hmm. like again, I am not, I thought feminist was a dirty word growing up. I did too. As feminists I said, before, bad. <laughs> I wrote my first college paper on like how the, I wasn't a feminist and I thought it was ridiculous and like I hate it. And then I became a gender studies major, you know, <laughs> it's like, and that's because of things that people like Betty Friedan did and like, they made it so that like women were afraid to be feminist because it would mean that you would be sad and angry and alone. And you hate your husband and you hate men and you don't like children. How can you be a teacher and a nurse if you're a feminist? Yeah. And it's like, that's all of our jobs. I know. It's It's crazy. And it's like, and it's hard because I think that Betty was trapped in this like kind of like cage that she made herself Mm. where it's like, she kind of, and I think she was an angry person and I think she <laughs> was a an abrasive person. But it's also like women have always been working, but now like we need to be paid equally for it. We need to be treated equally for it. And like we need equal opportunities because like Betty's the one screaming about what Sandra wouldn't scream about. Like yeah. because Sandra's like, no, it's fine. Like they're not I'm I'm not having a bad time. I'm just, you know, <laughs> applying for jobs like everybody else. And it's like, <laughs> no, but you're not applying for jobs like everybody else. Mm. You are being discriminated against. Openly. Openly. There okay. <laughs> you are one of forty. Well, and like you can't get a job. And I mean, every one of the best things about Betty is like she's calling the kettle black. You know, she's there saying it and people weren't doing, weren't doing that. And I think that's what makes her such an astonishing figure. Yeah. Like, because without her, we don't, nobody's there telling these, you know, upper class women that their position doesn't have to be so. Again, I think the it was finishing school. The women in America were going through a, yeah. an, an imaginary finishing school, yeah. and and she was telling him, "You don't actually have to, right?" Because like she's looking around at all these women, she's like, "We all graduated from the same class. Why are we not all doing great things?" Like yeah. I think that was very frustrating for her. And here's also the thing: is like Sandra took everything by on a case by case basis, mm. and <laughs> Betty clearly did not. No. Betty was a person who said all women should be doing X, Y, Z to benefit all women when that obviously doesn't work. And I think that (laughs) it's odd because like Sandra met in the middle, but I also think that you need to meet in the middle of these two women. Oh yeah. You do need to take things on a case-by-case basis. You do need to look at the individual, but also there are some sweeping rights that we all need. Mm. And I think that's the beauty of looking at both of these women who are very different in (laughs) the same exact era. I mean, even the Julia Child connection I I thought was so funny. I know, I know. I can't believe it. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) You know, they're interacting with the same group and... They're getting different reactions, I think, because, yeah, they're 
playing the same game, but in very different ways. They got different decks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, are you ready to toast? I'm ready. Who would you like to toast this evening? So, I don't know. I was thinking a lot this week while I was researching, and then I was thinking during your story, and I'm just throwing everything out the window. I just want to toast both of our moms. Oh, no. I just... Both of our moms had four kids and were toting kids back and forth and they both stopped their jobs after they got married to like mm-hmm. have families. And I think they were caught in the middle of this era mm-hmm. and it's something I will never be able to understand. Yeah. And I, I, totally I just, I, I think that the, the baby boomer women have a real different view <laughs> on, yeah. on, you know, they gave us the step stool that we're climbing. I agree. So Cheers. cheers. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. And I am going to toast the bitches who get shit done. Yeah. Because sometimes you have to be a little mean. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that Betty Friedan was right in all of her choices and all of her exclusions, but I am saying that she did get some shit done. <laughs> and, like, be mean, baby. Yeah. I don't know. I, again, I don't think we need to say that Betty Friedan was a monster and we need to exclude her because she did do a lot of work. Yeah. So to Betty, to the the bitches, to the the bad bitches, baby. (gasps) All right. Okay. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. So I told you this already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're producer and I are watching Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're watching it. So my best friend, Claire, and your parents were Mm -hmm. like, it's time. It's time. It's time. So we're watching it. Everybody's a bad guy, and you love them all. Okay. And that's the the only promo I I can give people who've watched it have watched it, and people who haven't haven't. It's great. Kevin Costner is old and hot. (laughs) He's got four kids. They're mostly middle-aged and hot. Mm. His daughter is terrible person but she's my favorite character i just it is a magical show where everybody's doing the wrong things and you can't fault them for it i love it (laughs) so to yellowstone Yellowstone. (laughs) what are you gonna promote this week i am also gonna promote a show oh it is ted lasso (laughs) so i got a new phone recently Mm -hmm. and i didn't realize that it came with three months free of apple tv which is great because i've been wanting to watch ted lasso but i haven't been able to because i cannot subscribe to another streaming service (laughs) but now i have it guys it is i think the best show on television (laughs) (laughs) i have a couple different laughs that i do for different things Mm -hmm. and the laugh i have for this show is out of control it's like boisterous it is like And it's really upsetting. Okay. And I laugh that way multiple times throughout. And, but the real thing, other than the fact that it makes Mm. me laugh, is that Mm -hmm. it makes me want to be a better person. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. It's, uh, I love shows like that. And like, it's, but it's very clear that, like, you know, Ted Lasso is not a perfect person, but he's a very wonderful person. And like, they show his faults as long, along with his, like, glorious, you know, and like, there's a big theme in the show of being accountable. Mm. Like at one point, one of the female characters goes to another female characters and she's like, you have to keep your men accountable because she was like, if they don't take accountability for their actions, like you're fucked. Like basically, you know, and like, 
And it's true. Like you have to be able to say when you were wrong and when you're sorry and like when you fucked up and mm. like there's like this great scene afterwards where like the girl who received that information just like apologizes to this guy. She's like, yeah, I'm sorry. Like I treated you like shit. Oh, yeah. And like there. I can't tell you how much I love this show. It's so That's good. That's great to hear. It's so I always good. need a new show on the docket. I mean, I always have a million shows on the docket. I know. But I me always too. always need a new one. So I can't wait to watch Yellowstone, though, because we're literally one episode away from finally finishing Umbrella Academy, which has been a a chore. A chore. <laughs> I, I don't want to say it's a chore, but it chore. is it's because it's so intense mm. and I hate some of the characters yeah and i'm irritated and i just want it i feel bad i don't like because i'm interested in the show but i just i need it to be over yeah which but, i hate feeling because like i could just stop but i don't want to i want to no. find out what happens yeah. but i need it to stop yes i heard 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 so find us everywhere please do we're likable we're lovable <laughs> if you review us you get a free book in the you mail we'll, we'll contact you for your address mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we don't, then contact us, Messenger, yeah. on any of our platforms, and we will send you this free book. Yeah. Be like, hey, I'm Shauna. And I reviewed and you. And I reviewed you. So and I want my free book. My book. <laughs> um, trust say, me. Okay. You're the only one right now who's gotten it, so we'll know who you are. Shana. But hopefully, by the time this comes out or the next episode comes out we'll have more people to give free books and to. i'll have to buy more books i bought several but exactly. we'll see what happens <laughs> so rate and review us it's the best way to show support to this show um also i'm sorry you don't get a book if you say mean things about us i'm just gonna say oh, that right yeah here. assholes no. <laughs> yeah if you're like they suck i just want to make that no clear book. i'm not sending um, you a book well I'm i might g- just for marjorie but yeah <laughs> but no you- because if they don't like us they're not gonna like anything so <laughs> yeah so anyways um, we love you. If you want to join us for more of these shenanigans, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can hang out with us. And, and we have so much fun. And we're about to have like things. a planning sesh. There's like Ooh, things It's going to be good. It's going to be good because we're done a season. And, we're not going to uh, see you guys for a couple weeks, like yeah, real time. Not for a few weeks. But if yeah. we also, you know, if we convince week. Allie enough, she might send us on Patreon photos of her wedding. <laughs> Ooh, maybe. And we love you very much. <laughs> Happy 13th season oh my god and we hope that you never forget that well-behaved women do not get involved in politics no they don't (laughs) and they rarely make history goodbye